Hello, welcome to, I think it's episode five of Taking the Universe Around the World. I am Robin Ince and this is my kind of journal and thoughts while on the Horizons tour with Brian Cox, which is currently going around, uh, we've probably actually finished Canada now, and uh, on our way down the west coast to the USA, eventually ending up in Houston. So here are a collection of uh, thoughts, some random and some less so. And we actually start, we just finished in Toronto and uh, we were on the bus. As you may know, unfortunately, we timed it very badly. We left Toronto as two major sporting events finished. So it took us about two and a half hours to get out of Toronto. And then we just drove down to Niagara to cross the border, go to the USA and go to Pittsburgh, which was tremendously exciting for me because I am a huge George A. Romero fan. And in fact, I watched Martin again last night. If you've not seen Martin, you really should. It's uh, George A. Romero, I think, uh, you know, even, even up to the end of his life, considered it his best film. Uh, beautiful haunting film about a young man who maybe is a vampire maybe isn't a vampire maybe it's a mental health thing there's all but it's just yeah and uh, i i i think it's a it's a, it's a masterpiece i want to stay alive i do need blood from the director of night of the living dead but unfortunately, it was actually filmed in Braddock, Pennsylvania. We weren't going to Braddock. But anyway, I was still excited to be going to Pittsburgh. And uh, also, of course, because of the Andy Warhol Museum. But I'll start off by telling you about when we tried to cross the border to the USA. Now, we were in a big tour bus. And so we get to the border... And the first thing we find out, the person who is at the, the, the border guard, whatever you wish to call them, um, she seemed quite grumpy, but I can understand that. It's about 2 a.m. You're just watching these kind of buses and trucks go through and stopping them. Yes, you may well be grumpy at that time of night. And unfortunately, it also turned out that Brian Cox's passport had some kind of anomaly. Due to his specialness and his ability as a theoretical and particle, well, particle physicist predominantly, he has that ability to walk through solid objects without atomic interaction. And because of being able to walk through many places without atomic interaction, it means that his passport misses one very, very necessary stamp. Now, this first border guard is confused, and also she asks about the band on the bus. And our driver, wonderful man called uh, Jeremy, who also, by the way, is a big fan of zombie movies as well. Jeremy explains that we're not a, a band, but we are travelling on the bus. And then Brian chips in, leans in, he goes, uh, no, 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 we're not a band, I'm a physicist. Now, of course, this increases the amount of confusion. What would a physicist be doing in a tour bus why are they in a tour bus does this actually mean the tour bus is being used to bring some of their strange scientific samples some of their very very small black holes that they've made which they're then going to let loose somewhere in the midwest and destroy america or is he one of those scientists who's actually been creating kind of dr moreau like mutations and they're all caged up somewhere under the seats is he one of the crazy scientists Anyway, eventually it all got ironed out. The border guard remained quite grumpy, but then another border guard came along and explained about the fact that because Brian is a particle physicist and can walk through borders without physical and atomic interaction, that's why the stamp's not there. And we keep moving. It all went quite gently across Niagara. 
Before we'd left Toronto, though, we had had one big problem, which I should have probably mentioned earlier. Anyway, the fact was we had to do these COVID tests, and the COVID test is all self-administered, but you then have to go onto a website where someone goes, Hello? Now, you need to... Do not open that yet. You have opened that too soon. You've opened that too soon, and now the COVID test is null and void. And Brian and Steph, they were infuriated by the disembodied but authoritative voices. And uh, it, it did... At, at times, we, you know, we all felt like different versions of Moses in front of some kind of burning bush. And uh, anyway, eventually we finally got through them, and we did all our COVID tests, and they were all negative, and we were fine. But no one asked when we got to the border, so... Uh, that was a lot of fury over nothing in fact brian managed to do i did mine up to one minute i got the final result one minute before i walked on stage and brian managed to do his in the interval it's a reasonably boring story but it's just to warn you if you are going into america and you need to do one of those self-administered tests it will take you longer than you imagine and you must obey whatever the voice says continue the experiment obey the voice Anyway, the bus journey, in the end, through all of these different things, took much longer than we imagined, and we finally appeared in Pittsburgh at dawn. I groggily disembarked and took to my bed, frustrated that I was going to have even less time in Pittsburgh than I'd hoped. So breakfast was at about midday, and because it was at midday, that meant breakfast was grilled cauliflower, potato salad, and a pint of coffee. This is something we are still getting used to. And I know this is just hack comedy stuff, but it's not hack comedy. It is literally just saying we still cannot get used to the size of things. Um, the size. Of, so Steph and myself in particular go into a panic. The moment it goes, what's that you want and the moment they go, uh, we go uh, small, medium, uh, that one, the, the cup over there. Anyway, this is an interesting thing because Steph is very rarely panicked, but she is panicked in a barista situation. I also asked the barista, who was a really nice man, actually, about the zombie museum because I had heard there was a zombie museum which I think had originally been at the graveyard where George A. Romero begins Night of the Living Dead. I'm sure you'll remember where the man is pretending to be Boris Karloff. I'm coming to get you, Barbara. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it! You're ignorant! They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it! You're acting like a child! They're coming for you. So anyway, despite the, 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 the lack of uh, a Romero world to visit, in fact, what I'd heard was that there was a shopping centre, but a couple of towns or cities down, which had now been turned into a kind of Dawn of the Dead world. Uh, come into the Savini Tunnel. Uh, unfortunately, it was too far away to uh, visit, even if it did actually exist. And it's still, to some extent, in my mind, a kind of a, a brigadoon of zombies. So instead, what I did was I got the cinematographer that lives in my head to create a kind of gauze effect over Pittsburgh to make it look a little bit grainier and a little bit more bleached and just slightly more monochromatic and have kind of more haunted memories of the steel industry. But it couldn't last very long because Pittsburgh was really bright. And it was filled with people who were dressed as Ali Sheedy in The Breakfast Club. Ali Sheedy, by the way, in the first part of The Breakfast Club, not the bit at the end when they turn her into, oh, doesn't she look lovely, which still is a frequent annoyance to me. Uh, I, have, I, I believe the message of The Breakfast Club, which is to say, goths, why not stop wearing black? and make yourself look all nice in the kind of pretty dress that you'd wear to go to your sister's wedding. I don't think that's a good message. I think stay in your grubby jumper uh, is, is a better message. But that's just 
me. I realise there are many who adore that film. It's interesting because Pittsburgh, again, from my, my kind of Romero days, it was it, now there, there is a level of gentrification. But as usual in so many of these cities, the gentrification has moved at a speed that has still left many of the humans, other humans, behind. On the corner of the street just by the 7-Eleven, a man just drops his trousers to struggle with his Y-fronts. And uh, he's still battling with the Y-fronts when I'm across the road. And all pass him without comment and barely a glance. Just another homeless man fighting with his underwear. Now, I have so few hours to experience Pittsburgh... So I have to go, right, what am I going to start? So I do go to the Andy Warhol Museum. Now, I know I'm going to be able to do the Andy Warhol Museum quite quickly because I was very fortunate to go to a big Andy Warhol retrospective when we were last in the USA three years ago. There was a fantastic one at the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art, which I think may well also have been the one that came to the Tate Modern but was kind of intermittent due to COVID. I should mention, actually, while I was at the Andy Warhol exhibition in San Francisco, there was another artist who I knew absolutely nothing about and her name is Suzanne Lacey um, it was one of those great things that I went to watch one exhibition and they also by the way had the best San Francisco Museum of Modern Art had the most entertainingly bizarre uh, toilets or restrooms that I, I'd seen somewhere somewhere back from a long long ago time ago on my Instagram I do have some of the best uh, art museum toilets that I visited in that period of the US tour as well as all the pictures of the hotel carpets but anyway that was great but Suzanne Lace's work was I think one of the times that she really got well known she she did a very very powerful piece about how the media portrayed the murders and the victims of the Hillside Strangler in the late 1970s. And it's this kind of incredible union of, I think, art and, and activism as well. And then in the exhibition, there was another work of hers that basically I, I, I will... I, uh, De tu puno elettra by your own hand. I apologise for that pronunciation, but it's it basically based in, in Ecuador, and in Ecuador, certainly at the time that she created this work, uh, an estimated 60% of women were victims of violence, and only 10% of women were believed to have managed to escape from violent partners. And men in a bullring, this is the film, and you actually stand as if they are all the, the, in different screens around you, stand in the middle of this, men in a bullring recite women's words of their violent experience. It is just a tremendously uh, potent piece of work. So, Suzanne Lacey, if you don't know her work, I really recommend you, you start discovering it, because I thought, and she covered so many different ideas and so many different cultures and... Uh, I, w I just loved finding it. So anyway, I got to the Warhol Museum and uh, and I knew that also I didn't have to do the whole Warhol Museum because I'd seen, you know, the most famous works I had visited on numerous times. But starts on floor seven, very, very friendly people. Um, and I just slowly work my way down the stairs to the present. Obviously not present work by Andy Warhol. 
it's been 35 years or more that he's not been around but uh and they didn't have that video that he directed for curiosity killed the cat either but i really uh, the early work is, is always the most fascinating i think with a, with a famous artist uh and so they had his folding screens that he did and the surviving kind of designs the dior designs that he did for a shop window display and then some wonderful illustrations of, of, of colorful desserts which kind of reminded me of david mckee's mr ben cartoons and that by the way is very much a compliment because i love the work david mckee who only died very recently and created those those, those beautiful dream-like episodes of, of of mr ben and of course many other children's books as well and I've always loved seeing also how Andy Warhol worked with his mother, who did much of the lettering on his commercial designs. I, I was, uh, where was it? It was um, Sydney, Sydney in 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 the 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 big gallery there, Gallery of New South Wales, had uh, an exhibition a while ago that I went to with my friend Carolyn, which was all of the work that he did for kind of commercial catalogues, etc., with his his mother's beautiful lettering, as well as her doing the lettering on an album cover for Moon Dog, uh, the blind poet a musician who dressed as a viking who uh, somewhere i've got a book about him as well i'll recommend that on another day um and i'm also one of the things that i really like about the andy warhol museum is uh, i said andy warhol like that i said andy warhol andy warhol as in holes andy warhol anyway you know what i'm talking about hunky dory andy warhol looks a scream and him on my But anyway, Andy Warhol, one of the things that I liked was that they had the, for partially sighted or blind people, they created tactile versions of some of his work which say please touch which always worries me in an art gallery i think anything that says please touch must be some kind of trap because as we know do not touch the art go to the science museum you're allowed to hand crank things there and touch them do not touch the art but this has so you could just kind of feel the shape uh of the of the brillo boxes and 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 various other famous pieces of uh of of work and i enjoyed the fact that the great dane that he'd owned uh was in a uh in a perspex case so uh, he had believed it was the great dame by the way was called cecil and andy warhol had apparently been persuaded to get the dog uh because he'd been told it was owned by cecil b demille this may not have been true but it's uh it's a dog which had a reputation of being owned by cecil b demille fortunately there was also a little bit of george a romero right towards the end of the museum in the archive room there were images of the great makeup artist tom savini turning Andy Warhol into a zombie while the second floor was reserved for a contemporary artist Paula Pivy I believe or Paula Pivy uh, and she just filled one of the rooms with Technicolor polar bear cubs with names like fried halibut again I bring art where I go and mama who is the artist and that had just a, a tremendous sense of, of of kind of delight to it as well my plans had included going to the Mattress Factory, which is uh, another art gallery which has a lot of contemporary art, but I did that normal thing. I looked at the map and it was just a little bit too far. So I swapped visiting another gallery for using just Pittsburgh as a whole as my gallery. And I really, I, I went around, I was just looking at the signs and the concrete structures around me. I ended up just standing under a railway bridge for a while, just looking at the different ways that the kind of rust and the concrete had merged. And the building opposite the Warhol Museum, which had, I'd, 
you know, always adore those those lovely old adverts painted into the brickwork. G O L Wilson Specialty Products for Concrete Construction. And I don't know why. Also, as I've aged, I've become more enthralled by just big walls. You know, it's, it's the thought of how they came to be, and the hands that built them. So I just, yeah, I I I, I like thinking about how did that big wall begin. And how many hands went into making that big wall? Um, I've also always been impressed by just the, the number of signs on any freeway that tell you, wrong way! Because by the time that's become apparent, it may well be too late. But but America has... A, I, I, think, I think there's a few in the UK now, but it definitely has a lot of signs which suggest that a lot of people have been going uh, the wrong way. Though, of course, that can also be seen as uh, as philosophical advice um or or possibly even just life changing advice um and there was also a new a new one on the path to the car park uh which was just begin one way begin one way so sometimes i i'm thinking that i might start a fortune cookie factory and all of the messages in the fortune cookie are actually merely messages that i've seen on road signs and i can see how people uh react to them and uh and you know how, how useful it is as uh as a kind of you know kierkegaardian or schopenhauerian uh way of living your life i also enjoyed it, it was my fa- pittsburgh had my favorite rusted fire hydrant and over the river there's there's a lot of bridges a lot of yellow bridges and so I just did that, really. And in, in, it was, it did work. It worked as an alternative to going to a gallery of just turning the city into, which is what I try and do anyway. Um, back over the river, though, I tried to make the sense of a, another painted piece of brickwork, which just said, Superior Sanitary Union Man. So there we are, Superior Sanitary Union Man, which sounds like a working title for a Bruce Springsteen album. And there's a beautiful window over an old violin repair shop because just above the actual doorway there's another window on uh, on the second floor. And in the window you can just see balanced on its frame lots of fading, slightly broken violins which I presume are destined to buckle uh, as all of those Valentine's Day couples sit sadly unaccompanied as they eat their pasta vongolo because... No one came to collect that violin. That violin has been left behind. And I also walked past a small parking lot. Park at Phil's. See, this is not just any parking lot. This is not just a car park sign. That wouldn't be good enough. You know you can trust Phil to, well, whatever, yeah, just mean that your car's still going to be there. It's still going to be at Phil's place. If you park it there at 10, if you park it at Phil's place still going to be there at six trust phil and his ability to make sure that your car remains stationary i find a bookshop of course i always find a bookshop don't i and it is amazing books and records on liberty avenue i've already reached the point where i'm trying to be frugal something that will collapse terribly at salt lake city but you'll find that out later on but the one book that i decide i need is a book about rod McEwen. And he now seems to be unknown to an enormous number of people. Very few people seem to remember Rod McEwen. But he was a huge success for quite a long time. 
Um, my mum was a very, very big fan of his. She loved his work. She loved his kind of gravelly voice, his sweet-natured poetry, I think gave her comfort during sometimes very difficult times. So I decide that I need a book all about him. You might remember his song, Soldiers, Soldiers Who Want to Be Heroes. Number practically zero, but there are millions who want to be civilians. Soldiers who want to be heroes, number practically zero, but there are millions who want to be civilians. And he also uh, worked with Jacques Brel as well. So I do buy that. And also by a book by Luke Reinhardt, who is best known for his highly influential Dice Man books. But this one is about EST and Werner Erhardt. Werner Erhardt is the kind of character that I'm sure you will have heard about in various Adam Curtis documentaries. But this, of course, was no more than an illusion. Yeah, and all those other ones where the path of our 21st century insanity is traced. In my hotel room, I eat coffee beans and record another episode of the thing that you're hearing now, but one that you might have heard already or you haven't heard at all. But anyway, there's, there's, uh, there's four behind you if you haven't heard them yet. I'm a bit tired, so the negative voices find it easier to jemmy open the doors in my head. Outside the theatre, I look at the Horizons poster and how I am, according to pretty much all the publicity, a totally non-existent part of the show. And tonight it troubles me. It's just one of those moments of egotism. Eventually, I eat some blackberries. And as I eat the blackberries, I instruct my ego to just shut up. It doesn't matter. I still go on stage. The fact that no one's expecting me there is an entirely different issue. And Pittsburgh itself is a lovely old theatre. And I admire the brickwork that I see backstage. Despite managing to make the show 20 minutes shorter just one week ago, all that time has come back without a seeming to add anything. It's another of our Einsteinian problems. Or is it just the problem of the excitement of physics that makes Brian's brain fizz and froth? The audience questions tonight include how does negative time distort matter? And the same structures and patterns appear over and over in nature. Do you, Brian Cox, expect to see new patterns or variations on the same patterns as our understanding of the universe increases? I enjoy performing my poem more and more. Of all the possible purposes of me being in the show, I think that poem is the main one. I was lucky to come up with that poem on the day I was off to Beautiful Days. Beautiful Days is one of my favourite festivals. It's uh, down in Exeter in southwest England and uh, it's curated by the Levellers. It always just has lots of lovely people there. I kind of knew that the poem had something about it. I'd, I'd written it very quickly, uh, just sat waiting for a tube train to take me to Paddington. But I made myself perform it and then afterwards someone came up to me and they were in tears. Um, they wanted a photograph of the poem. And it was something that they were about my age and they'd just been diagnosed with ADHD. And I think they were just facing up to suddenly realising that many of the things that they had thought were things they had to battle against were not things that they needed to battle against. They were things that they could actually embrace and move with. And many of the things that they saw as faults that they had, those faults were actually also things that gave them their, well, their their, their superpower. As, as Maggie Darren Pocock talks about when she talks about her dyslexia, you know, uh, 
as as an astronomer she says that she realized that her dyslexia could also be her superpower that it also gave her an avenue and a way of thinking that was not as easy accessible to other people so anyway i was glad that i made myself perform that poem the first day i wrote it a beautiful days and i was glad that i was at beautiful days because it's such a lovely festival that they welcomed it as well pittsburgh is the first proper standing ovation in the usa for this show so brian is happy we're all happy and i end the night drinking wine and telling brian and steph that they must watch christopher walken in the dead zone i still think it's one of the most beautiful and moving films ever to be classed under horror and with the fly is another of david cronenberg's brilliant and underrated romances i once thought i was mutating into a housefly but I'll tell you about that another day Today is a tour bus day, so we need to do as much as possible in as little time as possible. Uh, We start with various different versions, very slight permutations on the egg and cheese wrap, and then we have another pint of black coffee each. In the diner, very friendly diner, the same one that we went to before, there are two gothically dressed but bleach blonde women who talk of their band. I can't quite find out what their band's actually called. And then a toddler giggles wildly and runs over to the vast display of possible Cheetos, sliding on their knees till they get to the orangey corn snacks. Dad cheerfully distracts them towards the fruit. It's gloomy and it's wet, so rather than boxing in the park, we go to the gym and lift weights until failure. That is actually what Steph makes us do. Feel the burn and fail, fail again, fail better. I have obviously Samuel Beckett in my mind with just a little bit of Charles Atlas as well. There's a kind of an Atlas Beckett going on. And Brian is a little bit unhappy about the particular sartorial elegance that I have in the gym today because I decided that I would wear a T-shirt emblazoned with his face on it. It is the worst-selling T-shirt of the tour. So I'm glad there is a stranger on a treadmill and hope he wonders if the man... So I'm glad there's a stranger on a treadmill when we walk in and I hope he sees my T-shirt and wonders if that man heaving weights over his head insists on anyone accompanying him wearing his face. To be fair, Brian didn't want this T-shirt to exist, much as his fans love his face. They love equations even more. Also, I should add that though it was the worst-selling T-shirt of the tour at that point of the tour, I have been campaigning quite hard and it has started to move a few notches up in the T-shirt chart. Training on tour makes such a huge difference, but like so many, the mockery surrounding my attempts at sport when I was at school created such an indelible burning shame that I've taken long into adulthood and any sport I've attempted has had to be accompanied by a self-mocking commentary to preempt the imagined mockery of any of the alphas in the room. Thanks to these gym visits and Steph, I no longer think that I'm so utterly, 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 utterly useless and so I'm healthier for that and I think anyone out there who, like me, carries that schoolyard shame with them You will find the right people and you will find the right places where you can exercise and you can start to shoo away all of that, that, again, that stamp of, of the horror 
of exercise. I even quite enjoy it. I mean, I'm always trying to find excuses to get out of it. But actually, after I've done it, I've had a lovely time. Today, we're off to Columbus. As we approach Columbus, Ohio, we drive by the Lion's Den Adult Superstore. This is where the lions can be found, flicking furtively through pornography and looking at vibrating eggs. Nothing says Mighty Lion more than secretly masturbating in a barn. I'm glad to see that Columbus Art Gallery is near the hotel, but sadly the Billy Ireland Cartoon Library Museum looks like it's just going to be slightly out of reach, which is a pity because it's a surefire bet that it has some Will Eisner, and I love the work of Will Eisner. I came to it far too late. I'm sure many of you all have read Contract with God, and uh, but yeah, any of his work, the New York Trilogy, etc., go and read Will Eisner if you have not read it already. This is a very short day. Because not long after we arrive, we're off again to a restaurant to celebrate tour technical whiz Jack's 30th birthday. He's one of those people who has a look of resignation that many English people have when being celebrated. A kind of shy sort of indifference. Uh, OK, yeah, so maybe I'm 30 today, but oh, any bother is unrequired. Brian puts him at his ease by talking about tomorrow's audiovisual requirements and other technological needs, and occasionally mentions just the nature of galaxies. Some of these galaxies may not now be cut for Columbus. Almost the whole crew are there. We end up talking trans rights, Roe versus Wade, and Mary Poppins up our end of the table. It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious If you say it... The crew tour bus driver, who I've not met before, is a Donald Trump supporter. So we talk in a heated but civil manner. Where I have seen brutality, he has seen gentility. And vice versa. Then we all eat cake. It's chocolatey enough to put most of us on the cusp of a diabetic coma, and all further argument is now null and void. The conversation moves back to the centre of the table, and it moves to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and the child catcher, which of course allows me to wax lyrical about one of my favourite subjects, the ballet dancer Robert Heltman. I tell the story of the friend who rang him to say that he had just taken his children to Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and they were utterly terrified by the child catcher and as Robert was coming round to dinner later on in the week could he just have a word with the children to explain that he's an actor and Robert Helpman went of course I can that's absolutely fine and then when the children got to the phone he just went I'm coming to get your children it's one of my favourite stories of all time. I also told that one that ends with the punchline I'm fine but I don't know how these umpires manage. If you don't know the rest of that story, just... Well, in fact, you can see it. Kenneth Williams told it often as well, and, of course, far better than I do. We also talked of Dick Van Dyke. Our sound person, Noel, has worked with Van Dyke, and I was happy to hear that she considered him a delight. We're all done by 8.15. Standing in the street, I see the people whose night is actually just about to begin, and I listen to the bar that is across the road that is basically doing the hustle what to do now I lie on my bed wondering whether to risk watching the TV which is just perpetually adverts it seems with uh, only a homeopathic quantity of actual content or maybe read a little of one of my many books perhaps about Rod McEwen or Sexy Psycho that I bought in New Haven 
There is Magnum P.I., Dynasty, Wrestling on Fox, or Frank Ferranti in his one-man show about Groucho Marx, which is, of course, on PBS. Fox News has Trump burbling in the rain about Mitch McConnell being a crow or something. So, I read about Rod McEwen. And to be honest, I do watch a little bit of Magnum P.I., but it's just not the same with Tom Selleck, even though I know that, oh, look, we won't go into the issues of Tom Selleck. It's not needed. Last night, I had a troubling dream about my father. He ended up bruised and broken by a peculiar series of events that happened in a rapid series of flashes. I presume it's because I'm some distance away, and also the guilt of touring, of leaving family behind and placing further responsibility on their shoulders. As I come out from the dream and into the hotel room, I have that kind of disturbed sense disturbed sense that this might be one of the dreams you read about in scriptures or in the 14 times and I warily open my email to see if anything untoward has happened. It hasn't. Reason in the world has prevailed. I am not having portentous dreams. Though I did have a very strange dream more recently actually. I had had a a trilogy of dreams. Uh, In one uh, on a Tuesday night, I dreamt that I met David Bowie. It was very nice to meet David Bowie, um, though eventually he gave me COVID. And uh, and then on Wednesday night, I became the drummer for the Beatles, though George wasn't there, but John and uh, and Paul were there. And uh, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to explain to them that I didn't know how to drum, because sometimes in those dreams you actually suddenly go, oh, I just start, and you can do it all, but I couldn't. I was And the drums were a little bit too far away from me, and they were badly set up. And then Ringo Starr came in, and he was absolutely uh, absolutely furious. Anyway, what can I tell you? Well, when I'm away, one thing that I remind myself a lot about is the fact that my wife keeps the world turning as I actually go around the world. My alarm today has gone off at 8.30am, as I was told breakfast would be nice. By 9.39, texts are still unanswered. Brian is considerably better at sleeping than me. It's one of the myriad reasons that this older man than me has managed to repel entropy while I tumble headfirst into disorder. My eyes are creased behind their bags today. Almost retinal creasing. Eventually I give up waiting and go for a walk. So of course as I cross the bridge and find a statue about emancipation, the call comes that the others are ready for their omelette. Now Steph is here. The day is built around the fitness regime. Brian will spend the morning trying to make quantum entanglement explicable to the lay reader and I will aim to take in as much of Columbus as I can before being placed under 50 kilos on a bench. As I wander under the awning of tonight's theatre, I see someone taking a picture of the billboard. I think this is fantastic. This must be one of the early Brian Cox cosmology fans. They can't wait. But on closer inspection, it turns out it's our tour coordinator, Natalie. Not to say that she may well not be a fan of Brian, but anyway... One thing I also noticed is that we missed Johnny Mathis by one day. He was on stage here when we were on stage in Pittsburgh. He is an icon with a tale to tell. By the way, I also recommend you read the chapter about him in John Waters' book, Role Models. For the next 37 minutes, as I walk almost alone down the street, very few other people are walking, everyone else is driving, I find myself mumbling a kind of version of when a child is born over and over again, but it's literally when a child is born. But a child that will grow up and turn tears to laughter, hate to love, war to peace, 
and everyone to everyone's neighbor, and misery and suffering will be words to be forgotten forever. When a child is born, a ray of hope, when a child is born, flickers through the... When a child... Anyway, it's, uh, well, the stuff of your nightmares, but not mine. It's my reality. I walk up Broad Street. Columbus is spread low and wide. I don't have to be discreet with my mumble mathis because of this loneliness. And I wander by a church whose banner is the LGBTQI plus banner, and it promises a welcome for all. I take a detour down some back streets, past dumpsters and empty car lots. Later I see Lazarus Parking, a multi-storey affair that I presume gets its name from people perpetually underestimating which floor their car is on, and so they have to rise again. Yeah, 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 do you see what I've done there? Do you see what I've done there? Yeah, 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 etc. I get to their library, which is impressive, it's spacious, it's artful, and it has very helpful librarians. Aren't librarians nearly always very helpful? One wall is covered in small paintings of all the authors who have been keynote speakers at the library's yearly celebration of learning. The first was Ray Bradbury, an utter educational joy to listen to when it comes to the art of storytelling, and I highly recommend watching him in conversation with Ray Harryhausen. The whole space is an inviting celebration of literature. By generally avoiding the city guidebooks, Almost whatever I find in each one of these cities will come as a surprise. Behind this library is a lush park with some splendid topiary. Their hedge figures trimmed to recall the Georges Seurat paintings that are figures in a park. I walk the wrong way for a while, seeking eccentric signage, but then turn back for the Museum of Art. Yet again, this is an active space. Buying my ticket, the man behind the counter, who has very impressively decorated ears, Nothing gaudy, just an interesting collection of silver. Wonders if I would also like to see the special exhibition, which is currently Roy Lichtenstein. I'm not sure, as I've seen quite a lot of his work. But then the woman behind the counter, too distant for me to inspect her ears, tells me that I won't have seen anything like this as it is his early work, his pre-pop art days. Much like Andy Warhol, I'm always fascinated in seeing how a famous artist eventually reached the works that created their celebrity. And she was both persuasive and correct. I also tell the silver-eared man that I wish I could find more Robert Rauschenberg in American galleries. But he's never heard of him. No artist's work has made me smile as much in a gallery as Rauschenberg. I promise this man that he is in for a treat if he goes into the adventure of Rauschenberg's work. Whether it's the found objects, uh, the decorated stuffed angora goat, the silk screens, the bubbling mud, or the unfolding boxes in many shapes. The man behind me joins in with high recommendations of Rauschenberg. I hope the silver-eared man trusted us, because what a ride he's going to have. Early Lichtenstein is influenced by Miro, Picasso, and the myth of the American West. Lichtenstein wrote, Art is mysterious but definable. It is mysterious as a thing but definable as a way. It's one of nine whimsical poems from his master's thesis. His desire was to evoke mythic narratives, but beside his images of cowboys and, occasionally, a man on a lion, I'm also captivated by his painting of a woman knitting. I always like to see the knitter celebrated. I'd hoped that his painting The Diver was a celebration of when Salvador Dali was showing off by turning up to a do, the 1936 Surrealist Exhibition in London, in a deep-sea diving outfit, 
He wanted it to illustrate the depth of the subconscious that he wanted to reach, but due to his failure to correctly set the valves, it almost made him totally unconscious and killed him. The burial at sea was not required. Anyway, that's not what the painting was about at all. It was more about Jacques Cousteau, who was far more adept at his valve settings. Due to the limits of time, I have to quicken my pace and I make rash decisions about the art when I reach the floor of contemporary artists. Here, artists talk about reacting not merely to culture and the material world, but also the virtual world. As David Chalmers writes in his latest book, we do a disservice if we discount virtual reality as being part of a real experience. I'm taken by Robert F. Williams' Final Girls, a piece inspired by the final girl theory of slasher movies, with a touch of the man who fell to earth, too. On top of the layered art, historical and cinematic references, Williams also uses techniques derived from painters on TikTok and Instagram. For Instagram painters, by the way, I recommend you check out John Leavers. That's uh, John with an H, uh, and Leavers as in, you know, Leavers that you pull, because he does very, very beautiful art and also created the art for the print of my poem uh, about the final den. So you can find out more about that at Cosmic Shambles. I also want to find out more about Jade Fadujutami uh, or Jade Fadujutimi. Uh, they write, my parents derive their shapes, colours and patterns from clothing, anime, video games, soundtracks, childhood obsessions, traumas, experiences and objects I've found along the way. You only have to maybe cut out one or two of those words, and I would say that was the same for what many of my favourite stand-ups are trying to do as well. I'm also captivated by Nick Cave's sound suit. It's not that Nick Cave, there's another Nick Cave. Uh, Samaya Critchelow's The Weight of Silence, Ken Fandel's The Skies Above, and just loads more. I think back to Basquiat, going around the Museum of Modern Art in New York and commenting that there were no black artists to be found. Here in Columbus, there seems to be a move forwards, as well as in other cities too. There must be at least some positive change, or so many hacks wouldn't make money by viewing any increase in diversity so negatively. I mean, it's as if the whole story of white blah, 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 blah. You see... Rather than seeing this as an increase in diversity of visions, the jump to monetized position for the hack is to consider any white male artist having a canvas taken down and replaced by a non-white artist as some sort of act of censorship. I've been naive for so much of my life in my failure to recognise the low hum of white supremacy that is in so many places, including my own mind, including amongst those people who I've sometimes imagined were progressive. For some there will always be the presumption that art, proper art, truly springs from white men, as others are still battling their barbarism, their lack of sophistication, or their genetic predilection for compliance. In the UK today, I see there's an article in the Saturday papers, we're hurting Oxbridge in the name of equality, are we? This is the position of the eugenicist, who holds Francis Galton's hereditary genius as an essential text. I also found myself very fond of Amina Brenda Lynn Robinson's self-portrait with a rabbit, which reminds me of the most splendid things in the catalogue of supermarket art and Thomas Hart Benton's bleak and monochromatic strike. I love that the gallery has jigsaw puzzles of some of the paintings to see if you can reconstruct the works as you stand before them, and there are plenty of places to leave your post-it note comments. I'm tempted to buy the 1,000-piece jigsaw of Andrew Wyeth's Christina's World. But if I start buying jigsaws, as well as all these big books, then there may be true luggage chaos. 
Some of the post-it notes on the board include the comments, when I was a kid, I was basically She-Ra. That feels relevant. People only want to complain and talk about the fault of others. Am I enough? You can also make things from tinfoil in the creative zone. Walking back onto the street, I passed the drug and alcohol dependency clinic. Outside are two solid granite benches. Carved in it, one says, treatment works, and the other says, recovery happens. I keep weaving through the quiet streets. I admire a shop window that has these vibrant dresses that would be perfect for an all-singing, all-dancing stage production of The Stepford Wives. There's also Discovery Park, the first park specifically developed to celebrate Ohio's public educators. There's a lovely statue of teachers and children and learning. Yet again, I'll say, we will truly know that we are civilised when the statues of the teachers and the nurses and the scientists and the philosophers outnumber those of the generals and politicians. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode of Taking the Universe Around the World. And as usual, thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton, and everyone who makes this show possible by supporting us via Patreon. So you can just go, if you don't support us via Patreon, go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles. See you next time. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.